book we haven't studied through together, this book of Revelation. Only three chapters left, counting chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 is a, is a really important chapter from the standpoint of the study of future things, or as we call it, eschatology. In fact, everything that you uh, believe in terms of putting yourself in a particular category, theologically, about future things, hinges on how you understand Revelation chapter 20. Because this is the chapter that is on the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. There are different ideas about the millennium, and what your perspective is on the millennium determines which theological camp you find yourself in, in terms of understanding theology. And the millennium is only mentioned here in Revelation chapter 20. Now, the period of time of the kingdom ruling on the earth, there are a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament about it, but, but it all comes down to a few verses in Revelation chapter 20 when it comes to, am I premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial? Now, what those terms mean, it sounds really tricky. Millennium just means a thousand years. So it's referring to this period of time that we're going to see in this chapter. But there are those, and I'm among them, who believe that Jesus Christ returns and then sets up his kingdom on the earth in order to fulfill all the promises that he had made to Israel. And so I believe that his return comes before the millennium, before the thousand-year reign. So I believe my chronology of that, I believe that the church age ends, the rapture takes place, Christians are taken up into heaven. There's a seven-year time of tribulation on the earth that we've been studying through for the last months. And then Jesus returns, as we saw in chapter 19, and he sets up his kingdom here on the earth. And so that's called premillennialism. Now, among premillennialists, different people have different perspectives on exactly when the rapture comes, or even if there is a rapture, but you're a premillennialist if you believe that he's coming and then setting up a kingdom that has something to do with Israel, where he is ruling from Jerusalem and fulfilling the Old Testament promises that he had. Now, there are also people who are called amillennialists. And if this is boring you, I'll be through it in just a minute. Ah, <laughs> uh, the A, letter A means not. And so amillennialists don't believe in a literal kingdom being set up on the earth by Jesus Christ. Um, amillennialists in general believe that the church is the fulfillment of the millennial promises, of the kingdom promises. And so they believe that basically the church in some way is inheriting the promises of Israel, which there's some definite truth to that, but that Israel no longer really has a particular place in God's plan because they've rejected the Messiah. And so the millennium, they would say, is right now. If there's a millennium, and obviously it's been more than a thousand years, so all millennialists in general don't believe it's a literal thousand-year time, but they believe that what we're in now is the time of the millennium, that it's symbolic. Then there are people who are post-millennial. There are less of those, but they were an offshoot of the, of the amillennial camp, they believe they're the more optimistic people. And it, this was big in the 1800s when people thought that we had conquered war, 
They thought that we're bringing peace in. They saw so many Christians involved in government and everything that they thought, we are doing so well that when we get the earth ready for Jesus' return, we will create the millennium here on the earth, and then he will return post-millennium. So it's our job to bring in the millennium and, and bring his rule on the earth, and then he'll return when he thinks it's ready. And so there were a lot of people back then, there are a lot less people now who are post-millennialists, but you'll hear a lot of them on Christian television still. Usually people who are like obsessed with with um, politics and things like that, or you know, we need to bring the country back to its knees. And usually, not always, but usually those are people who believe that if we do enough of that, we'll usher in the millennium and, and Jesus will then return after we have the earth ready for him. Uh, that kind of died out after the first and second world war and you know all the wars that we have now, people are much less optimistic nowadays, and so you don't find a ton of post-millennialists out there. Now, amillennialism, believe it or not, is probably the predominant view of the church as a whole. Now, in the first few hundred years of church history, everyone was premillennial. Everyone read the Bible, and they go, Jesus is going to come back and set up his kingdom. And these are Jewish people who had studied so much in the Old Testament about the kingdom that they, they were definitely looking forward to those promises being fulfilled. All of the promises that God had made to Israel, many of them hadn't been literally fulfilled yet. So it was all premillennialism for a few hundred years. But then Augustine came along, and he tended to spiritualize it. And Augustine taught that, actually, this is the millennium. And Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in our hearts, and therefore... We are the fulfillment of this. We're living in the kingdom of God right now. The Catholic Church followed after Augustine. He was very influential. And then even when you got to the, to the Middle Ages and the Reformation, uh, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and people like that, being part of the Catholic Church, they were, con they were really concerned with how people get saved. They weren't really worrying about biblical prophecy. So in general, they rarely even discuss the topic, and therefore, to this day, most Reformed people are also amillennialists because they never really made the break from, from uh, Catholicism at that point. There's a couple of, there's an ugly reason why that may have been partly the case, and I won't go into that a lot, but there was a lot of anti-Semitism on the part of the Catholic Church as well as sadly, on the part of the Protestant church, the Reformed churches, and people like Luther and Calvin were very much against Jewish people. And as a result, it felt good to go, they're done, and we're here. Premillennialism has really made a huge comeback, partly because of Israel coming back to the land. Because, you know, for almost a couple thousand years of church history, there was no Israel. So if you're going to believe that God's going to do something in Israel, you're like, How? It's a desert. There's nothing happening there. There is no nation. But once we witnessed the miraculous restoration of Israel as a nation after World War II, and then seeing how God has, has protected her and done amazing things for her, people began to reassess the Bible and go, 
maybe it actually means what it literally says. And so premillennialism is a, is a popular view today, but probably overall not as popular as amillennialism. And by the way, there are some reform people who are also premillennialists, like John MacArthur and people like that. So um, it's never a cut and dried thing. Okay, so after all of that, that's why this chapter is so important, because this is the only chapter that specifically talks about a thousand-year reign of Christ. And you might go, wow, we're building our whole eschatology based on our interpretation of, you know, three verses in one chapter? Yes and no. Yeah, that, that should be a concern. I, I think we should be careful not to be too dogmatic when we're basing our understanding on a lot of that. But it, but it isn't just these three verses here in chapter 20 that talk specifically about this time. This is just where it's identified as a thousand years. Um, there, throughout the Old Testament, there were plenty of, I mean, just, it's full of prophecies about an age of the kingdom. And in fact, before we get into chapter 20, turn over to the book of Isaiah chapter 2. I'll just show you a couple of these just to show you that this isn't something that just got made up from, from uh, the book of Revelation. And in fact, as you see the kingdom promises, this is everything that every Jewish person was looking forward to, the day when Messiah would come, set up his kingdom, and rule and reign in righteousness. So uh, Isaiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 2, Isaiah says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, the last days, that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills there in Jerusalem, and all nations shall flow to it. In other words, Jerusalem will be the center of worship. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So this tale of a time when the Messiah will come, and all of a sudden now there's no reason for weapons. People will turn their focus on agriculture and things like that. You won't have to spend money on defense because Messiah is ruling, and therefore there are no wars anymore. And then um, you can look over at Isaiah chapter 11 for another example of this. Um, Look at verse, beginning with verse 4, Isaiah chapter 11. But with righteousness he, the Messiah, shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze together. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. 
They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So Jewish people at this time have always been looking forward to God doing what he said he was going to do that honestly he had never completely done. When was there ever a time in history where it was okay for a little child to play with a poisonous snake? When was it okay for animals that are natural enemies to just lie down together at peace? When was it possible for there to be one who's ruling over the world in righteousness? When did that happen? How can you say that that has taken place? Now, in other passages all through the prophetic books of the Old Testament, promises are made specifically about the boundaries of Israel. As, and, and it's much bigger than it's ever been historically. So you got to go, is this a time, in fact, that is future? Or is this all symbolic? And is this something that's only going to be f- fulfilled metaphorically? And how you decide that determines whether you see this kingdom as being yet future or as seeing whether it's like, well, you know, yeah, we're kind of in it now. I see sort of some of this because you can find YouTube videos where two animals are playing together and, you know, things like that. So, so um, that's, a, that's a critical question for us. For Jewish people today who still believe that there's a Messiah, who, those who are orthodox enough to really believe the Word of God, they're expecting Messiah to come and set up this kingdom. They can't believe that Messiah has returned. And partly the reason they reject Jesus Christ is they don't understand why he didn't set up this kind of a kingdom. Well, we understand that he's coming twice, and, but they don't get that, and that's why they deal with this kind of a controversy. Now let's look into chapter 20 and, and see what John reveals to us here. Beginning with verse 1, I hope I didn't lose you on all that millennial talk, but it really is important if you, if you care about um, future things. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, the abuso, place where demons are locked up. And a great chain was in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. <laughs> in case you don't know who he is, the dragon, the serpent of old, the guy from Genesis 3, Um, the devil, Satan, this guy. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the abuso, the bottomless pit, and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he, he should deceive the nations no more. He's been deceiving them all this time, ever since Eve. But he can't deceive them anymore until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. A couple of weird things about this. You got to wonder, first of all, if Satan can be held with some kind of a chain, uh, angel, where have you been? Why did you not lock him up sooner? There were days I regret that I wish you had had him locked up. Times that I was fooled and deceived. And I, but God's plan involves Satan, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But here, during this thousand years, Satan is apparently completely restricted and cast into a bottomless pit, into the abuso, for a thousand years. And then he's going to be released, which we'll talk about in a minute, too. So the question is, 
if the millennium, and the word millennium just is from the two Latin words that means milli means thousand and annus means year. So if this thousand years is started when Satan is bound, restricted, and thrown into the abyss, I don't know about you, but I haven't noticed lately that he is all tied up. He seems pretty busy to me. Peter over in 1 Peter 5.8 says, be careful because Satan is like a roaring lion roaming around seeking whom he may devour. That's the devil that I know. So in order to believe that the millennium is happening now, you need to believe that Satan is bound now. Now, people can do that because you can go, well, you know, I can pray and ask God to bind Satan. He's limited because, you know, he's ultimately defeated. Jesus Christ died, rose again, so Satan was defeated there. So, yeah, you can see in certain restricted sort of ways that Satan is limited today, but in actuality, it seems that he has the same freedom that he's always had to deceive the nations. Personally, I will believe we are in the millennium when I stop seeing people being deceived. And I'm not seeing it. I think people are bigger suckers now than they ever have been. Even Christians, I'm amazed at what they will sucker for. And so, but again, that's the prelude. Satan is restricted for a thousand years. He's put on a timeout. And he's not quite finished yet, as we'll see. So that introduces this time. And then what happens in verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." So there's these thrones, places of authority, and there are people sitting on them. But then there are, in addition to those people, there are also all of these people who we've been reading about who were killed during the tribulation period, and they too are set in positions of authority, leadership, and power. So the thousand-year reign, and this is one thing I love about Jesus, he finally is on the throne, literally, in the earth. And the first thing he does is share his authority. Most people, when they get authority, they want to hang on to it. They want to protect it. They certainly don't want to share. You've seen, you probably worked with people who, who got promoted. And as soon as they are in a different position, they sometimes will treat you differently. Because, well, now I'm an authority. Now, you know, I can't really mix with the little people. And that's a very human thing because we're so insecure in our power that we, we're afraid of somebody taking it away from us. But Jesus comes to the throne and he goes, hey, plenty of thrones for everybody. Everyone who has given their life to Jesus Christ, he says, I got stuff for you to do. I want to put you in a position of authority. Now, he has talked about this a lot. Remember back in Revelation chapter 1, in talking to the church, um, John says, uh, you know, talking about who we are in Christ, Jesus Christ, verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests, or literally a kingdom of priests 
to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We see it a little later in Revelation 5 and other places as well. So who sits on the throne? Well, for one thing, it's us. People who gave their lives to Jesus Christ are given this position of authority. We see that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Remember, in, in Corinth, the Christians were suing each other, and it was really a bad witness, and it was really stupid to waste their time going to court against each other. And, and Paul said to them, don't you guys get it? I mean, isn't there a way you can work out your differences? Isn't there somebody at your church that's smart enough to listen to both sides and help you to a solution? Because he said, someday you guys are going to be ruling over people. And in fact, you're even going to be ruling and administering over angels. And if you're going to have that job in the future, what's your problem with why you can't handle this now? And so, and then the martyrs are set aside in a special sense because they've just recently been slaughtered for their faith and now they are in positions of authority as well. Um, what do we do in a position of authority? Not sure. One thing I know is people are not designed to not work. If you've retired, um, you understand this. Something's weird. You, your whole life you think, if I can only quit working, this will be awesome. And you quit working and you're like, what do I do? I don't even know what to do with myself. And, and, and the truth is, we're happiest when we're doing something. Now, it might be nice to retire from one thing to do something that you really want to do. But when we're in heaven, it's not just going to be sitting around on puffy clouds going, hmm, you know, what do you want to do today? Oh, let's just sit. But yeah, there's always going to be stuff that we want to do, that he wants us to do. And so in the millennium, Jesus has a, he's just spent seven years judging the earth and saving people, revealing himself as the Messiah. Now he has a thousand years to fulfill the promise that he had made since way back to going back to Abraham. And, and so while he's at it, hey, I have stuff for you to do. Uh, you're going to be in a position of authority. Now, some people um, have speculated that our jobs will be you know, geographically related. That, and we're going to talk in a little bit about the Bema Seat judgment where rewards are given. But some people believe that depending on how faithful you were to the Lord, you'll get a greater or lesser assignment in the kingdom. It's possible. Um, I don't know. Pastor Chuck says he staked out Hawaii and he wants to rule there. <laughs> I'm just, I have my eyes on Barstow and uh, <laughs> the outlet malls, you know. But w whatever it is, this is a time when people are ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. He shares the rule. Um, do you feel like you're experiencing that now? Does anybody respect you at all? Come on, men, you're not even the boss of your own home, and you know it. Where's your throne? Oh, never mind. I know where your throne is. But as we read on, and we should, um, the rest of the dead, verse 5, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So here he's explaining not everyone is there during the millennium. And he talks about a first and second resurrection. Everyone who ever lives is going to rise again. The Bible makes that clear. We are not temporary. We are permanent. Whether you accept Jesus Christ or not, someday you're going to come back and you're going to face him, either as his savior, as your savior, or as your judge. So here what he's saying, though, is the people who have rejected Jesus Christ throughout history, um, the people who have rejected him during the tribulation period, um, they are still in a holding tank. They're in a place of torment, uh, a place called Hades, where they're being held waiting for facing up to what they've done. So everyone today who doesn't know Christ goes to a place of temporary suffering like a drunk tank. Everyone who knows Christ, when they die, instantly you go be with the Lord. Everyone who trusted in God in the Old Testament and put their faith in him, when Jesus died, he went and brought them up to heaven. Everyone who dies during the tribulation, we've already seen, goes right to heaven. So everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ as a sacrifice, they're all in this place where they are going to rise later, but he says they're not there now. They are coming up later, and we'll see them at the great white throne judgment at the end of the chapter. So who are all the people that we're ruling over? Because of all the Old Testament saints and all the church and all the tribulation saints are all the ones who are on thrones. Who do we rule? Who populates the millennium? Well, think about it. The tribulation is only seven years long. So if there are children who are born during the tribulation, or perhaps even before, we're not sure what happens to babies at the rapture, but, but people who haven't ascended to the age of accountability will, could easily survive the tribulation. and They won't need to take the mark of the beast because they're not buying and selling anything. So you have all those kids that are growing up. Then you have people who became Christians during the tribulation, but they weren't martyred for some reason, and they're still here. Um, we're not sure what happens to them. They may be transformed right at that point. You know, who knows? Um, but definitely, there are going to be people who survive the tribulation period. And some of them, if they took the mark of the beast, they'll be killed at Jesus' second coming. But there are always going to be those fringe people who, you know, listen to Art Bell and whatever, and, you know, they're like hiding out in Idaho, and they're not going to take the mark, even though they've never really accepted Jesus Christ. So some of them may survive the tribulation period. So all of these people, there's probably quite a few people when Jesus comes back who are not killed at his return and who will live on into the millennium. Now, in addition to that, we're talking about a thousand years of not only peace, nobody's getting killed in wars, but diseases are extremely rare at the time. If somebody dies when they're 500 years old, people go, oh man, his life was just started. So during the millennium, people are living a lot longer. They're naturally, because they aren't going off to war and everything, they're doing a lot of other things that causes them to procreate. So the population is just exploding on the earth. So during this thousand years, there's a lot of people. And think about it. You go, well, why do you need to have so many rulers? Why do you have so many leaders? Well, none of these people have seen 
what Jesus Christ has done personally. They've only heard the stories. So you go, man, you'd think everyone alive at the end of the tribulation would definitely trust in Jesus Christ. And no doubt a bunch of them do. But their kids and grandkids and great-grandkids don't necessarily. And so somebody who's born 600 years into the millennium, they've just heard, it sounds like fairy tales to them, to hear about Jesus dying and all they know is Jesus on the throne. All they know is, man, I can't do anything wrong. I get nailed. And so they have a righteousness that's purely outward in nature. But they'll still, we will have roles of keeping them in line, keeping them in check. We're probably not going to be the cops of the millennium. We'll be the ones who tell the cops what to do. The cops are probably um, angels and and, uh, people like that. So we don't know for sure. So here's this thousand-year time, a long time of great peace and prosperity on the earth, of people not having a choice to do what's wrong because you'll get busted if you do what's wrong. So there's this outward righteousness that's going on on the earth. However, then, at the end of it, look at verse 7. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Why? He's locked up, man. Why would you let him go? Why would, why would this happen? And he'll go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, which are symbolic of enemies of Israel. Over in Ezekiel 38, it talks about a world leader named Gog and Magog, but this is just symbolic of them, this rebellion. Gathering them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Satan is able to get so many people to join him, you can't even count them. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, and the beloved city, Jerusalem, where Jesus is reigning from. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. They went there a chapter a thousand years ago. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So after a thousand years of peace, This seems like a fairy tale that God would go, I think I'll give Satan another shot at this. And if you're like me, you've wondered, why does he do that? Things were so nice during the millennium. Why in the world would he gum it up by turning Satan loose again? Well, in wrestling with that question, you might want to start out by wrestling with, why did he allow Satan to be on the earth in the first place. When Satan rebelled and was cast from heaven, why didn't God just kill him? Why didn't he stick him in the abyss forever? Why didn't he just send him straight to the lake of fire that was made for him anyway? Why does God allow Satan to exist today? And if you figure out why God allows Satan to exist today, you'll make some progress on figuring out why he lets him go again. So, Why is Satan allowed to tempt people today? Why was Satan allowed to tempt Adam and Eve in the beginning? Well, I can't give you a thorough answer. But one thing I do know, God wants people to follow him who want to follow him. God does not want robots. God does not want the kind of righteousness that exists in the millennium, where people are good because they have no choice or they're afraid what's going to happen if they aren't good. 
Now, some of you have been taught that the Christian life is like that. You just need to stay in line or God's going to whack you and, and uh, you know, kill you or something. That's not what he wants. God wants to be in fellowship with people who want to be in fellowship with God. And if he had never given people the ability to choose, then we would be essentially robots. We would just be programmed to do whatever it is that he wants us to do. And God doesn't want that. In fact, he created us with the ability to choose, knowing that most of his created beings would reject him. And yet, he wants those who choose to love him. He doesn't want anyone to be in heaven for all of eternity going, I hate this place. I mean, it's like when he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They were barely out of town, and they were like, oh, yuck, the desert. I want to go back to Egypt. I want to go back to building pyramids and being a slave. God's like, okay, go ahead. I'm not forcing you to be here. And so God has always wanted people who wanted to be with him. He doesn't want heaven to be filled with people that he forced to go there. Taking somebody to heaven who didn't have a choice is like kidnapping someone and holding them in a prison. It's not the way God does things. Now here, remember at the end of the millennium, there are a bunch of people who haven't really had the opportunity to choose Jesus Christ. Um, they had no choice. They had the fortuitous circumstance of being born at the right time where they, all they've known is like an, an Edenic existence where everything is amazing and nobody's sick and, and everybody's filled and there's no war and you could play with animals that used to be hostile. This is all they know. This is their whole existence. But have they ever chosen or is their righteousness just a righteousness that's enforced? God's never wanted people to be righteous because they're forced to. That's why he doesn't call us to go take over the world. Because he could do that. He doesn't need our help to do that. But he wants people who want him. And that is at the core of who God is. So here, these people who have never had a chance, he wants to give them a chance. Now, for all of those people who say, you know, my problem is my environment. My problem is my upbringing. My problem is my friends have always led me astray. My problem is the devil has always just tempted me. My problem is, oh, you know, whatever your excuse is for not walking with Jesus, you find out here in a thousand years of a perfect environment, it's amazing that more people than the sand of the sea still say, you know what, I'd rather not be here. I would rather not bow to Jesus. I'd rather not have him be a part of my life. Mind-blowing, I know, but people are people. And this gives us one more reminder that when you give people a choice, many of them choose to reject Jesus Christ. It helps us to see people today who reject Jesus Christ and go, what are you thinking? Well, people are this way. If you give them an opportunity, a lot of them are going to choose to walk away, to not take that opportunity. But there's a second thing going on here too. And this is a, a bit speculative on my part, but I think if you think about it, you might go, wow, that is kind of an interesting thought. We've always wondered about Satan. 
who made a mistake, rebelled against God, and, and now he's kind of like, boom, he's thrown out of heaven, he's the devil, God has this purpose for him and everything. And we used to have kids call up pastor's perspective sometimes, and quite often it was a kid asking, well, what if Satan decided he wanted to accept Jesus? Could he go to heaven? Because it's hard for us to conceive that somebody would not have an opportunity. And the answer, at least from a theological standpoint, is if Satan was going to get saved, somebody would have to die for him. And Jesus became a person and died for people. He didn't die for angels. So theologically, that's maybe a problem. But let's just say that it were possible for Satan to change his mind and be saved. The real question is, would he? And what we see here in chapter 20 is, God gives Satan a thousand-year time out. He sets him in the corner. He restricts him. He has a thousand years to think about the decisions that he's made. But as soon as he is released, he goes right back to doing what he was always going to do. Because he is acting according to his nature, his choice, who he has become. And, and by releasing him, it just proves once and for all, even if you gave Satan another chance, he wouldn't take it. Now, there are people who go, well, what about people who die, go to a place of torment? What if they have a second chance? Isn't that cool? And yeah, you know, humanly, we can look at it and go, it'd be kind of nice if God would give people a second chance. I wouldn't object to that at all. But here's the thing. Everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ, if they had another chance, they would still reject him. There are probably people in this room today who've rejected Jesus Christ for years and years. What's going to change to where all of a sudden, you know what, I, I thought about it again. No, there are some people who just choose to reject him. And there isn't anything that we can do about that. We can't force them because God doesn't want us to. And so again, as always, he says, have it your way. Do what you choose to do. Everyone in heaven wants to be there. Everyone in hell has rejected the idea of going to heaven. And if you went to hell and you go, hey, anybody want to go to heaven? Amazingly, they would go, blank, blank you. No, I don't want to. Because they don't want to bow their knee, ultimately, by choice. And so that's what happens here. And, and notice that the deceiver is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. There are... In the Old Testament, there was a place called Sheol that was the afterlife, and there were two compartments of it, a comforting side called Abraham's bosom and a, a side of torment. And when Jesus died, he came down and he took all the people in the good side and brought them into the presence of God. The other people are still in a place of torment. People who die without Jesus Christ today go to this holding tank, like a drunk tank, that's miserable, but it's not what we typically call hell, which is the fire and brimstone of the lake of fire that Satan is sent to here. The Bible doesn't have a lot of details about it, so I'm not going to pretend to know everything about it. But I know I don't want to be there. No, I don't want to go there. But I also understand from here, notice that Satan goes there and the beast and the false prophet are still there. The beast and the false prophet are. Now, there are people who question, is hell really forever? I mean, 
can't you go burn for a couple hundred years maybe, and depending on how bad you are, and then just be annihilated, just be burnt up? And there are some verses that talk about perishing. And so there are those who would just go, I like that idea a lot better than eternal torment. But here, the beast and the false prophet were sent there a thousand years before, and they're still very much alive and suffering. And not only that, it says that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, from ages to ages. There's no other Greek phrase that you could come up with that is stronger than day and night forever and ever to say this goes on forever. Now we know from other scriptures that hell will be hotter or punishment will be worse for people based on how much they know. And so there are some people who will be suffering a lot worse than others. But I don't believe that even hell at its best is going to be like Palm Springs in July. It's got to be worse than that. It's a horrible place of punishment. And it seems to me from the scriptures that when you go there, you stay there and it's going to be forever. The knowledge of having rejected Jesus Christ will go on forever. And now in verse 11, following Satan being judged, the satanic rebellion being crushed, then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat on it, it was Jesus, because Jesus said he's, the Father lets him do all the judging. Him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, everyone was blown away by him. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to their works. And then death and Hades, the negative side of the afterlife, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now before we said there are two resurrections. There are two types of resurrections. The first resurrection, was, it started when Jesus rose from the dead. He was the firstborn. And after him, everyone who has died in Jesus has been given their new bodies and they've resurrected. And then the last of those, at the rapture, everyone who is taken into heaven during the tribulation, people that put their faith in Jesus Christ are taken. And anyone who is resurrected to life is a part of the first resurrection. Well, now this is the second resurrection. People who have rejected Jesus Christ are once again going to face him and they will be brought back from the dead and they will appear before the great white throne judgment as Jesus Christ judges them. Now, in this judgment, there are books, and there's a book. The books that were open are the recounting of everything that the person did in their life. It's probably a video book that you can just show your whole life everything that you've done. The book is the book of life. That's the book with the names of the people who have accepted Jesus Christ, given their lives to him. This judgment is not about whether you're guilty or not. It says that they are standing before this throne. When they would have someone stand before the throne, it wasn't to present evidence. It was to sentence them. 
And so the sentencing of these people whose names aren't in the book of life, their lives are rehearsed and they will be condemned as guilty and sentenced to whatever their eternal punishment will be and they go from the great white throne judgment right to where Satan has already been cast, the lake of fire, um, the, the place Gehenna, the place of eternal torment, they go there forever. And this is as real as everything else. If, uh, you know, if I'm going to take the millennium as being as literal as I can, I believe that this is something that's actually going to happen as well. Now, this is as opposed to what we call the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. There is a judgment that Christians go to, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ. We will all ultimately answer for ourselves, but the judgment seat of Christ is distinct from the great white throne judgment that's here. In this judgment, they'll look at what you've done and you're condemned. How condemned you are is determined by what you've done. But if your name is not in the book of life, you're going to hell. It's as simple as that. Now, at the judgment seat of Christ, it's a little different because there, Christians appear before Jesus, and again, our lives unfold, the story is told, and depending on what we've done for him or not done for him, we receive rewards. And the Bible teaches that rewards are given to those who come to heaven based on what they did and why they did it. Now, in order to see this, you can turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 really quick, where Paul talks about this. The word that he uses is uh, the word bema. That's why it's called the bema seat judgment. A bema was, a, was an awards stand in general. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, verse 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. We try to please God. For we must all appear before the bema judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, and we're well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Now, Paul had already talked to the Corinthians back in 1 Corinthians 3 about this same topic, and so turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I hope I'm not confusing you. I have a cliff note version at the end. So. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verse 12. Now if anyone, well before he was saying, you know, that the way you live your life, you're building a foundation. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So in this award ceremony, if you will, your life is evaluated and it's, the fire is applied to it. And what the fire does is it burn up everything that you did that was a stupid waste of time. 
Everything that you did that was for the wrong motive, everything you did that was mean or every time you were a jerk, that part of your life is just wiped out. As Paul says, God's given us this foundation. What I do with my life is how I build on that foundation. And then according to Paul, that what's left after you wipe out all the wasted stuff, all the wood, hay, and straw, what's left is that gold and silver and precious stones of the good things that you did for the right reasons, for the right motives. And he says, we'll be rewarded based on that. But he goes, even if everything you've ever done was selfish, you're still saved just by the skin of your teeth. You're saved as by fire. Now you might go, well, that's fine. As long as, I, as long as you're telling me I'm saved, I'm okay. Not really into crowns, not really worrying about getting an award. I just want to be in heaven. And I can relate to that. I understand that. Except if God is saying, here is something that'll make heaven better. Here is something that's worth working toward. Then I'm assuming that if God is giving out rewards, they must be pretty good. And I am interested in them. I, I don't want to just get in by the skin of my teeth. And, you know, in Revelation, when the elders take their crowns and cast them at the feet of the Lamb of God, perhaps that's it. That maybe God gives us rewards and then we can say, you know what? I want to give this back to you because you did it all. But at any rate, that's the only judgment that Christians are going to face is that reward, that beam of seat judgment. But here in Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne, all you need to know really. In fact, if everything else I've said, millennium, Satan being bound, released, eschatology, blah, 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 blah. Here's what you need to know if you don't know anything else. You need your name written in the book of life. If your name is written in the book of life, this other stuff will happen and you'll see it happening and you'll go, I think Dave said something about some of this stuff. <laughs> but then at the end, it's like, here's your name. You gave your life to Jesus Christ. You trusted him for your salvation. So you're covered. That answer trumps everything else. Now here's the really lousy danger. I'm convinced that at the great white throne judgment, there are going to be people who have their theology down pat. In fact, Satan is a great theologian. No doubt he knows theology better than any of us. He's lived so much of it. He remembers it. And yet, he did not trust himself and bow to Jesus Christ. And as a result, he is condemned to hell forever. And I am certain that there are going to be people as these end times unfold, and they might unfold exactly the way I've described them to you, or they might be a lot different. But I'm sure there are people who, when the rapture comes, they're going to go, I knew it, pre-trib. I was pre-trib. Nice. And they're going to be still on the earth. And then they're going to be going like, watch for the Antichrist. There's going to be a one-world government. You have to take a mark. And there he is, see? And check it out. After three and a half years or so, he's going to defile, turn on Israel, defile the temple. See? Now watch this, Jesus is coming back at the end, setting up a kingdom, he's going to rule and reign, Satan will be, and they're going to watch all this happen and go, I was right, I was right, I was right. And then boom, they hit the great white throne judgment and he goes, they go, okay, give me the test. 
I can answer anything about prophecy. And the question is, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? And this theologian is going to have to go, uh, no. Poof. You're gone. And I, I just, it just aches my heart to think that there could be people that sit in here every week and they're going, you know, man, it's been great going through Revelation. I've learned so much. Now I'm ready to argue with people who disagree with me. This is really awesome. You know, I had seen all the movies before, but now it's really starting to... And they haven't come down to that simple Cliff Notes version of Revelation. Is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? And I just, I, I, I can't say this strongly enough. That's what matters in the final analysis. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you haven't done it, forget all this other stuff. Get right with him and do it today. Because this stuff is coming. There's no doubt in my mind that it's coming. But you can be where you need to be if your name has been written in the book of life. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. It, it does help as we go through this chapter. A lot of these things are starting to fall into place and this whole unfolding kind of makes sense. And some of us have come to the conclusion that Dave is right, and I agree with them. Others have come to the conclusion, I don't know, I'm liking that amillennial option or what. It doesn't even matter, God. I just pray that people here will know that their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So please, if they've rejected you up to this point, help them not to push this. Help them not to be those who won't surrender no matter what. God, I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would be drawing people to you. Not just to be right, but to be loved by the God who made them, to come into a relationship with him, to know that their future is secure. So God, please do that work by your Spirit. Lord, help all of us who know you to live with a proper perspective. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. There's a lot to think about here for all of us. Are we living like those who will rule someday? Are we, are we trusting in Him? Have we, have we come to the point of receiving Him? If you haven't received Jesus Christ, there will be people up here in the front 